want you to use your imagination with me for a minute, if you would. Imagine that you're going through a, just a, a great season in God, kind of firing on all cylinders. Seems like when you read the Bible, God's speaking to you from it. Um, you're going to church regularly. You uh, are seeing answers to prayers, and it's just a, a good season. You really feel some momentum in your spiritual life. You're coming home late from work one afternoon, and... Uh, you hear a siren. You look around, don't see anything in front. In the rearview mirror, you can see flashing lights, and you realize a fire engine's coming, so you pull off to the side of the road, and a fire engine goes screaming by, and right in its wake, there are several police cars just speeding along with, with sirens going and lights flashing, and you sort of pray one of those quiet prayers in your heart, Lord, whoever that's concerning, just ask you to help them, have mercy on them. You decide to stop maybe for a coffee on the way home, and as you're driving closer and closer to home, you, you see a plume of smoke, and you think to yourself, wow, that, that looks like it could be near my neighborhood. As you get closer, you realize that smoke is ascending indeed from your neighborhood. And to your horror, when you get down your street, you realize the fire trucks are pulled up in front of what was your house, they're putting out the vestiges of the fire. There's police cars there. <clears throat> you go driving up. You jump out of your car and go running, and an officer stops you, and you say, I have to get in there. My, my family was home. He says, this was your house. You say, yes, and he says, sir, I need to talk to you. You're panicking. They pull you aside, several other police officers, some other folks that you don't know who they are, kind of gather around you. They check your ID to make sure you are who you say you are. And they say, well, we don't exactly know how to tell you this. It seems like an organized crime syndicate has targeted your home and they specialize in human trafficking. Your wife and all your children have been taken. Can you imagine the wave of horror that would sweep over you and the numbness that that you would feel when everything that you've owned is gone your your family your wife your children they've all been kidnapped you don't know where they are well just such an event actually happened to david if you have a bible first samuel chapter 30 i want to read a verse there in a moment David's in a, a good season with God. He actually is living in the land of the Philistines because King Saul is hunting for David. But David is doing the will of God, and he's serving God to the utmost of his ability. He's leading his men on campaigns to fight the enemies of Israel. And they've made their home base in a town called Ziklag. And one day as they're coming home, they would have noticed smoke in the distance. And I'm sure one of the men said, man, that looks like it could be coming from home. And so they make double time to get back home only to find their whole town has been burned to the ground and looted. And all of their wives, all of their children have been kidnapped. The scripture says that David and his men wept until they had no more power to weep. 
And then it gets worse for David. Because in their anguish, all of his men blame him. And they talk about killing David. They're holding him personally responsible. And we read verse 6 in 1 Samuel chapter 30. It says, Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Other translations say he found strength in the Lord, or he felt the Lord strengthening him, or he drew strength from God. Now here's David. He's obviously perplexed. He's fatigued. He's been unjustly blamed. He's sorrowful. And yet he somehow finds strength in the Lord. You know, Isaiah 27 and 5, God says, let him take hold of my strength. And David did, in that critical moment, took hold of strength from God. How did he do it? Maybe he rehearsed some past victories. Times when God had helped him in other situations in the past. Maybe he prayed. Perhaps he worshiped. Maybe he just considered the faithfulness of God's character and the strength of God's promises. We're not told exactly what he did, only that at a critical time, he laid hold of God's strength. And I want to tell you today, so can you. The Bible says in Psalm 29 and 11, the Lord will give strength to his people. Psalm 46 and 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now listen, whether you're in need of spiritual strength today, emotional strength, physical strength, material strength, God has it for you and it can be laid hold of. And I just want to share with you today four simple thoughts to help us lay hold of God's strength in our times of need. Number one, we must admit our need of God's strength. <clears throat> we have to admit it. Many times I believe that the Lord is reaching out to us, endeavoring to help us, but we thwart what God offers because we're leaning on our own understanding instead of acknowledging Him. We're trusting in the arm of the flesh rather than looking to Him and to His strength. I remember when our oldest son Harrison was real small, I told him to take the trash cans out to the curb. He said, okay. And I knew when I told him to do it, he wouldn't be able to do it. So he goes and grabs the handle and he cannot budge the can. Both of the cans are full and they're heavy. And he's struggling and struggling. I said, you want me to help you? He said, no, I do it. Okay, have at it. And he's straining and struggling. He cannot budge the first camp. So I'm waiting and waiting, and he's struggling. And I said, son, can I help you? Oh, okay. Which meant I picked up the can, and he put his little hand on a handle, and I carried it out to the curb. And he, so he's helping me, you know. We set it down out there. And you know there are times God will direct you. He will lead you. He will command you to do things that you cannot do in your own strength. 
and he knows it before he ever directed you to do it. He knows that without his strength, it is an impossibility to you. He knows unless you look to him for strength, you will never accomplish what he's been directing you to do. We must admit our need for his strength. Look with me, if you would, Second Corinthians chapter 12. It's the last chapter in that book, Second Corinthians 12. And Paul's been writing about how he has been praying concerning a messenger of Satan that was sent to harass him. And the word messenger is the same word translated angel throughout the New Testament. So literally, a, an angel from Satan, a fallen angel, a demon spirit, had been continually buffeting and harassing Paul. And Paul has been praying and seeking an answer from the Lord, and the Lord does give him an answer. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect or comes into full manifestation in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, Paul went beyond just acknowledging his need of the Lord's strength. He said, I will boast in my infirmities. That word means an inability to produce results. He said, I'm going to boast in the fact that I can't. It's too big for me. It's beyond my strength. Because when I do that, his grace and his strength, they rest upon me. God's strength is made perfect. It comes into full manifestation in our weaknesses. But Paul said, hey, I'm going to boast in the fact that I'm weak, that I cannot do it, but he can. That I cannot produce results, but I do know the one that can. And when I take that posture, he said, the power of Christ rests upon me. And you know, we spoke about the same thing in the first chapter, and I'd like to read it to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he's very, very candid with his readers. And verse 8, 2 Corinthians 1 and 8, he said, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. I like that. Past, present, and future tense deliverance he speaks about. But he said, hey, we, this was beyond our strength. It was more than we had the resource, the capacity, or the willpower to deal with so that we despaired even of life. And, and I, I, I love what he said. He said, we had the sentence of death in ourselves so that we wouldn't trust in ourselves, but in him. I had a friend named Howard. He was quite instrumental in my early first few months as a believer. And he and his wife actually took on a small country church in Northern California. And Janet and I decided to pop in on them unannounced once. We, we'd been traveling the state and so we, we came to their little country church, and it was just a tiny 
typical little country church. And we spent the day with him. And I remember walking down this old gravel road with Howard, and he was quite candid, shared with me some of the issues they had going on. There had been a church split, and which meant they lost about half the congregation. There was financial difficulties. And then he shared about some severe physical ailments that he was experiencing. And then as we're walking down the gravel road, he stops and looks at me, hits himself in the chest, said, but I'm not afraid. I have the sentence of death in myself. And then we kept walking. I immediately knew he was making reference to these verses of Scripture. He was saying, look, Bayless, this is too big for me. These problems are more than I have the ability to cope with, but that's okay. I'm not trusting in my strength. I'm looking to the one who has all strength. I'm looking to the Lord. And listen, for some of you here, your first step in getting out of the distress that you're in is admitting that you can't. It's confessing your need of the Lord's strength in your situation. It's the first thing that some of you need to do. It's your launching pad, and you'll never get out of your present turmoil or difficulty or the straits you find yourself in until you say, God, I can't, but you can, and I'm looking to you. And that doesn't mean that you do nothing, because very rarely is faith inactive, which brings us to the next step. Number two, if we're going to find strength, we must get in to God's Word. We have to get into the Word. The Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 28, My soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your Word. John writes these words in 1 John 2, 14, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you. So find another place with me in Joshua chapter 1. And at this point in Israel's history, Moses has just died. And now Joshua has to step up to the plate and take the remaining Israelites into the promised land. No small task. In fact, he has 40 years of experience to look back on. They've been in the wilderness for 40 years. And the entire generation he grew up with, all of them, except for one other man, died in the wilderness. None of them ever experienced the problem. Yes, he can look back and see interventions on, you know, of God in their behalf, but he also has 40 years of failure to look upon. And then his mentor, this guy that's larger than life, Moses. Moses himself failed to enter the promised land. And so Moses didn't make it in. A whole generation didn't make it in. And now God says, okay, Joshua, your turn. Not the funnest of prospects. But God gives him some instructions at this important juncture of his life. And I want you to look in Joshua chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. He says, be strong. Everyone say, be strong. Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth but you shall meditate in it day and night 
that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong. Everyone say, be strong. Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now in verse 6, God says, be strong. In verse 7, he says, be strong. In verse 9, he says, be strong. And wedged right in between that, God gives him something that is absolutely essential if he's going to experience the strength of God. He said, this book of the law, my word shall not depart out of your mouth, but you've got to meditate in it day and night. Then, then you'll make your way prosperous. Then you'll have good success. And I think most of us understand the word meditate means to think about, to reflect upon. But the Hebrew word is actually much stronger. Yes, it means to reflect upon something, but it also means to speak aloud, to mutter or to murmur over and over. God said, you need to speak my word. Say it to yourself. When you get up in the morning, quote my word. Think about it. Before you go to bed at night, Joshua, be speaking my word when you're walking, when you're, when you're thinking. Consider my word and speak it out loud. Let your ears hear it. Speak it over and over. Speak my promises. Speak my commands. Then you'll have success. Then you will find my strength. You see, God's word is supernatural. Jesus said, the words I speak to you, their spirit and their life. The apostle Paul said that God's word is literally infused with or breathed in by God. Literally has the life of God in it. And God's strength comes to us as we reflect upon it and as we read it. Now, when I was a kid, I used to watch Popeye cartoons. Anybody ever seen a Popeye cartoon in here? All right. Popeye's always facing his nemesis, Bluto, and Bluto most generally is just beating the heck out of Popeye until Popeye eats what? Spinach. And then suddenly he gets strength and Popeye always wins the day. Well, my friend, God's word is your spiritual spinach. It's where you find your strength. You know, I have a one-minute clip from a Popeye cartoon that was first released in 1936. Guys, go ahead and put that up. Yeah, you get the idea. 
My friend, God's word is your spiritual spinach. I was on vacation once with a family. We'd rented a house and first night, the whole families were sitting down in the living room and a mouse runs right in between us across the floor. The girls screamed and we tried to catch it and couldn't. Next night, we're sitting in the living room, the same mouse, almost taking the same path, runs right like we weren't even there in between us. And from that moment, I had a vendetta against that mouse. It wasn't part of the brochure when they talked about the house. And so me and my sons and grandsons, we went after that mouse with a vengeance. And for the next week, that little mouse outran us and outsmarted us at every turn. We could, I, it would run behind some stuff and we'd go, yes, we've got it. And we'd move the stuff and he'd be gone. He was so fast and he was so clever. We never caught him for a week. That mouse would run across the floor every day and we never caught it. And it reminded me of another mouse I found once. I was cleaning out a field for a guy and moved these tumbleweeds and there was an old Coke bottle under one of the tumbleweeds standing erect and there was a mouse in the bottom of the bottle. Apparently had gotten inside, couldn't get out. I felt so sorry for the thing. I broke the bottle and the little mouse just stood there. Just like that. He was so weak. I don't know how long he'd been in that bottle. He couldn't even, couldn't even take a step. Well, what was the difference between bionic mouse that ran across the floor and that little mouse in the bottle? One had food and one didn't. We will never find strength from God until we get into his word. We must feed our spirits upon God's word. It will bring strength to us. And did you notice that in Joshua 1.8, he said, Joshua, don't let it depart from your mouth and, and meditate day and night that you may observe to do according to everything that's written. We don't just meditate in the Word so that we can get knowledge and boast in our knowledge. The whole idea is that when illumination comes, we act upon what we understand. Which brings me to the next point. We've meditated in the Word. We've, we've read it. We've reflected upon it. We've acted upon it. We, we've done our part. And so now, number three, we wait upon God. We've done our, our part. Now we must wait upon him to do his part. We wait patiently. We wait expectantly. We wait hopefully for God to act. And as we do, more divine strength will come our way as we wait upon the Lord. Look with me at another place, if you would. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40. And it's a wonderful chapter. It begins with prophecies about John the Baptist. It moves on and gives prophecies about Christ. And then there's prophecy about the church in this chapter. And then it begins to talk about God's mighty power over the nations and over all the people of the world and even his power over the created universe. And then he begins to ask several questions, beginning in verse 28 of Isaiah 40. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. 
He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Right? How does he do that? Let's read on. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Those that wait on the Lord, and it means to wait expectantly, looking for God to act. And as we do that, our strength is renewed. And the Hebrew word there literally means exchange. Those that wait on the Lord exchange their weakness for his strength. God's strength comes to us as we wait. And I love the fact that he talked about that we'll mount up with wings as eagles. Now, one of the things that I like to do is I spend a lot of time on the water. We live by the coast, and I spend a lot of time in, in the ocean, in the ocean and on it. I, I do a lot of free diving and spearfishing, and we go to Catalina Island quite a bit. And uh, one of the things we find everywhere we go are seagulls. And I, I personally think that a seagull's brain has to be the size of a grain of sand. All they do is squawk and fight and steal. I mean, they steal from each other and they squawk and they threaten and, and they're just, they're never happy. And they're, I mean, a, a pelican can be diving over a school of bait fish. The moment the pelican hits the water, there's like three seagulls on it squawking and trying to steal the, the fish right out of the pelican's mouth. And they're just always harassing each other and, you know, uh, squawking and stealing from each other over the smallest scrap of food. And they're just, everywhere we go, we don't like them. But on Catalina Island, there are at least two pairs of eagles that live on the island. I was over there last week, and we saw one of them. We see them quite often. And many times we'll pull up into a lagoon, we'll drop the anchor, and you see an eagle sitting on a cliff high above. If you whistle loud, immediately, every time, the eagle turns his head and looks at you. Once he looks at you, you take a fish and you throw it out. That eagle leaves its perch, glides around effortlessly, comes down, grabs that fish in its talons, goes back up, sits in its perch, and eats the fish. And the funny thing is, the seagulls always leave the eagles alone. The seagulls never try and harass the eagles. And I think it conveys the idea, if we will wait on God, we will rise above the things that are always squawking in our ear and stealing from us and threatening us and diminishing our quality of life. The strength of God will come to us as we wait and we will rise above those things. Scripture says in Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Now, these are words that G. Campbell Morgan said about waiting on God. He said, waiting for God is not laziness. Waiting for God is not going to sleep. Waiting for God is not the abandonment of effort. Waiting for God means first, activity under command. Second, readiness for any new command that may come. And third, the ability to do nothing 
until the command is given. And I had a friend that was sued by a business associate. And it completely took him by surprise. He just didn't see it coming. And as things actually unfolded, it was a third business associate that had done some underhanded things and left this guy holding the bag. Some other guy had engineered this whole thing to happen. And so this guy is now being sued by someone that he considers as a friend. And he said, it it devastated me. Listen, if you've never been sued, count your blessings. It is not fun. And so his character, his reputation has been besmirched. Possibly his livelihood is now jeopardized. There may be a full assassination of his character. And he said, this is what I did. He said, every night after the family went to bed, I had a hammock in the backyard. I would go out and I would lay in the hammock for an hour. He said, I'd spend the first while just praying and then I would quietly wait and listen. Did that one night, two nights, three nights. Lay in the hammock, pray for a little while, and then just wait and watch. Listen for God to speak. Did it four nights, five nights, six six nights. Go out, lay in the hammock, pray for a little while, and just get quiet and wait. On the seventh night, he said, God spoke to me, and I knew what to do. Sometime later, he met with a man. First time they'd spoken face-to-face, all the communication had come through attorneys. Got one guy's attorney on one side, other guy's attorney on the other side. They're meeting at one of the attorney's offices. He said, I did what God told me to do. He said, the first thing, I looked the man in the eye, and I apologized from the bottom of my heart. I said, I am so sorry that all of this happened. He said, I didn't mean for any of it to happen. I didn't see it coming. He said, I just want you to know that I am sorry. Will you please forgive me? So the guy almost started to cry. He said, of course. And then he said, this is what I'm prepared to do to make things right. Is this acceptable to you? And the guy said, yeah. He said, that's all I wanted. I just wanted things to be right. I wanted our relationship to be right. It was all done in 10 minutes. He said, the attorneys on both sides were really upset. (laughs) Because they're getting paid like 400 bucks an hour And they're thinking this is the first of many, many meetings. And now it's all done in 10 minutes and it's over. And what the guy said to me, he said, once I began to wait on God, he said, a confidence and a strength flooded into me. He said, and the panic I was feeling was replaced by an unexplainable peace. Wait upon the Lord and his strength will come. Brings me to my fourth point is if we're going to experience God's strength, we must choose to rejoice. We must choose to rejoice. Now, I'm just going to quote the verse to you, but in Nehemiah, the eighth chapter, Nehemiah has gathered all of Israel together, and at this point in their history, they're completely backslidden as a nation. They are far, far from God. And Nehemiah begins to read the scriptures to them. And he has people out in the congregation helping the people understand what the scripture means. And as the people realize how badly they have missed it, they realize the trouble they're in and how far they are from God, all at once the congregation begins to weep. 
this massive assembly breaks out in weeping. And in that context, Nehemiah says these words to them, Nehemiah 8 and 10. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I want to look at one final place in the book of Habakkuk in the third chapter. It's one of the shorter prophets near the old, the end of the Old Testament. And uh, we find a terrible situation here. Habakkuk 3 and verse 17 says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the herd, and there be no herd in the stalls, or the flock cut off from the fold and no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high hills. Notice he said, yet I will rejoice. It's an act of my will. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. Imagine this. People living in an agrarian society. This is utter devastation. The olive has failed. The the vines have failed. There's no crops in the fields. There's no sheep. There's no cattle. Everything is gone. Utter and complete devastation. Everything they looked upon for sustenance, everything they would feed their family with, their entire future, gone, wiped out. And he said, yet I will rejoice. Yet I will joy in the God of my salvation. My friend, joy is not dependent upon our circumstances. We can rejoice regardless of what we're going through. And most generally, I think if we'll look at things closely, we can find a few things that are worth rejoicing about. And maybe right now you have unpaid bills, wayward children, a lingering sickness. We don't rejoice for those things, but we can rejoice in those things. Rejoice because God always has an answer and we're not locked in. He always has a way out. Rejoice because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life and on our worst day, we're still headed toward heaven. Yet I will rejoice. And when we do, God's strength comes to us. In Isaiah 64 and 5, it says, God meets the one who rejoices. Literally, God comes to the person that rejoices. George Stormont was an old English preacher that used to come quite often to our church. He's been in heaven for many decades now. But he told me a story once about an Assembly of God pastor that for 23 years had been seeking the baptism in the Holy Spirit and had never received. He'd even preached on it because it was in the Word, though he'd never had the experience himself. And one day, George said, I was in a meeting with a man named Howard Carter. And Howard Carter, among other things, seemed to really have a, a gift 
for leading people in the baptism in the Holy Spirit. He said, and this Assembly of God pastor came in with a bit of a whine in his voice. said, Brother Carter, I've been seeking the baptism in the Spirit for 23 years, and I've never been able to receive it. He said, Howard Carter looked at him and says, and you're not getting it that way either. And then he quoted Isaiah 64 and 5, that the Lord meets him that rejoices. George said it was like a light bulb came on in the man's head. He said at that very moment, he fell to his knees, repented before God because of his unbelief, and then he began to rejoice. He said within five minutes, he had a mighty baptism in the Holy Spirit speaking in other tongues. And I'll never forget what George Stormont said to me next. He said, Bayless, more was accomplished in five minutes of rejoicing than in 23 years of begging and crying. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And when we rejoice, he comes and meets us. All right, number one, just being willing to say, God, I can't, but you can, and looking to him for strength. Turning away from the arm of the flesh in our own understanding and looking to him for strength. Number two, getting into the word because strength comes to us from his word. Number three, waiting expectantly on God. Waiting with anticipation and looking and listening for him. Strength comes to us as we do that. And then choosing to rejoice brings the strength of God to bear upon our lives and the situations we're embroiled in. Now, talking about his strength, let me quote a verse to you. Romans 5 and 6 says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. That word in due time means at the appointed time. When we were without strength, at the appointed time Christ came. We had no strength to cleanse ourselves. From our sin. No strength to change our own lives. No strength to cleanse the filth and the grime from our spirits and our souls. No strength to reach up to God. But when we were without strength, at the appointed time, Christ came. It's the whole story of the gospel. The Bible says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone is guilty. In fact, the book of Romans says the whole world stands guilty before God. God is a God of justice. And because of his justice, God could not overlook our sin. But he's also a God of love. And because of his love, he refused to overlook us. And when we couldn't reach up to him, he reached down to us. And he sent a Savior, his own son, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, then was taken, put through a mock trial, beaten without mercy and crucified. And there, suspended upon that cross between heaven and earth, God's son, who had been beaten beyond recognition, had the penalty for the sin of the world laid upon him by his father. It's the great exchange. Jesus willingly took the penalty for our sin so that we could go free. He died in our place. After three days and three nights, the claims of God's eternal justice was forever satisfied, and Jesus was raised from the dead. 
The Bible says if we'll believe that and embrace him as Lord, as Savior, invite him into our life, he brings us into a relationship the Bible calls salvation. It's not about ritual or ceremony or rules and regulations. It's about walking and talking with God. And you know, every person under the sound of my voice right now, there's something inside of every one of us that's crying out to know God. Every one of us. You know, I have this watch on. I just decided I want to bring this one today. I was doing a, a meeting one night in our, our home. I invited a bunch of pastors to come, and we had a dinner. This is years and years ago. And one of the pastors that came, I'd met him but didn't really know him. He hands me a, a box. I open up. There's a watch that I wanted to give this to. I said, oh, thanks. It's cool. Now, up to that point in my life, I had never spent more than $45 or $50 on a watch. I'd buy these little surf watches that I liked. I still get them. And so I, I said thanks and didn't think much about it. But I put the watch on the next day. And I come into the office, and one of the, the pastors, it was Pastor Tom, he's into watches. He goes, Bayless, nice watch. I said, oh, thanks. The guy gave it to me last night. He says, Bayless, that's a Breitling. I said, a what? He says, it's a Breitling. That's an expensive watch. I said, you're kidding. So Pastor Tom runs off to his office, comes back with a Breitling catalog, <laughs> opens it up. We start searching through it. Sure enough, my watch is in there. It was really expensive. I was shocked. I went right to the phone, and I called that pastor up. I said, look, I told you thanks for the watch yesterday. I want to say thanks for the watch. <laughs> So I go back over to Tom, and we're thumbing through the, the catalog, and there was another Breitling watch in there that was extravagantly expensive. This other watch, it had a little button on it. If you push it, you could be anywhere in the world, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, in the middle of the Brazilian rainforest. It didn't matter. You push that button, it sends an SOS signal out, and they will send a team of rescuers to come and find you and rescue you. Listen, that watch was a lot Uh, just imagine you're on a ship, it goes down, you end up in a life raft, you're out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Bobbing up and down in this thing, there's huge sharks swimming around your raft. You're thinking, what am I going to do? And then you remember, oh, my Breitling. <laughs> you push the button, sends off the SOS. Pretty soon, a helicopter comes and you wave them off and say, no, I'm not going to get rescued by a helicopter. A little while later, a ship comes. No, nah, go away. I don't want a ship. I'm only going to be rescued by a submarine. You're an idiot. <laughs> you know, the thing, there's an SOS that goes out from every human heart to be found by God. And God sent one and only rescue. It was a babe born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger grew up, lived a sinless life, showed people what God was like. He worked miracles. He healed the sick. He spoke of God not as being aloof and unconcerned, but being a loving father that was near and wanted to be involved in people's lives. Some people say, well, I, nah, I don't want that. I, I wanna, I'm going to meditate my way in. I'm going to astral project my way in. I'm going to, you know, listen, God sent one rescue. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And the fact is, the work has been done, and the way is open. And I got great news. There's not anybody in the house today that God's mad at you. You might say, well, you don't know what I've done. No, I don't. But Jesus died for every one of your sins. 
Listen, I was a drug addict. I got saved in a street mission. I did a lot of things that I was very ashamed about. Christ embraced me. I never heard the gospel until I was in my 20s. My wife was with me today. She was always the teacher's pet, you know, sort of Miss Goody Two-Shoes. Came from opposite end of the spectrum as me, but we both needed a Savior, and we met at the foot of the cross. And today, listen, it's not a coincidence you're here. God brought you. So bow your heads, close your eyes just for a moment. I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. And if you will just tie your heart around the words and speak them to God, God will meet with you. Now, the words have no meaning without a sincere heart behind them. They're empty. But if right now, sitting in this place, you want to get connected with God, you may not be interested in rituals or ceremonies or rules and regulations, but you do want to walk and talk with your Creator. My friend, you're supposed to be here today. God brought you here. And I want to just speak to the prodigal sons and prodigal daughters in the house today. You've had an encounter with Jesus, but right now, for whatever reason, your life is very inconsistent with what you say you believe. And you know if Jesus returned, you wouldn't be ready to meet him. It's time to come home, prodigal son. Time to come home, prodigal daughter. I want to pray for you as well. I'm just going to count to three. If you want to get in on this prayer, if you say, look, I I need to embrace Jesus or I'm a backslider, needs to come home. When I get to three, I'm going to ask you to lift your hand. Just keep them up for a moment or two. I'll acknowledge them. You can put them down. And then we'll all pray together, a simple prayer. And I just ask you to lift your hand because faith is always expressed through action. Just consider the reflection of your heart. In your heart, you're reaching up to God. Your hand is just a mirror of that. One. It's your moment, friend. Two. You ready to pray? Three. Come on. Get your hands up. Let me see. All across the auditorium, lots of hands. I love people got two hands up. That's awesome. All right? A lot of hands in the house. Okay, go ahead. Put your hands down if you would. Everybody put a hand on your heart. Let's talk to God for a moment. Just say these words out loud. Say, oh God, I come before you right now. I humble my heart before you. And I want to say thank you. Thank you for remembering me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending your son to die for my sins. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross. And I believe you paid my debt in full. I believe you were raised from the dead. Jesus, I ask you into my life and I confess you as my Lord and Savior. From this moment forward, I'm yours, Jesus. All yours. Amen. Would you look up this way? I'm going to turn it back to Pastor Gary. Before I do, I'm going to ask you just one, one final thing, if you wouldn't mind doing this. Before you go today, I want you to tell one person, and maybe whoever you came with, maybe a complete stranger, if there was any part of the message that seemed to stand out to you. I mean, put it this way, maybe God spoke to you through something or maybe something just sort of stood head and shoulders above the rest. Maybe it was the fact that you need to confess, I can't, but God, you can. Maybe it's that you need to make time for the word. Maybe it's waiting on God or maybe it's just choosing to rejoice in the midst of your circumstance. But I think it'll help you if you tell somebody 
what stood out to you. Pastor Gary.